and Kelly, I'll be reading from John chapter 5, starting at verse 16, as it says on the screen behind me, page 1619 of the Church Bibles. And just before this passage, Jesus had um, healed someone and told them to carry their mat. John 5, from verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you'll be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Well, hello again, and uh, thanks so much, Jeff. Um, Can I invite you to keep opening that part of the Bible uh, Jeff just read as we keep working our way through John's Gospel together? Um, I reckon this is probably one of the most difficult parts of John to read and uh, to understand. That's, that's me. Um, I reckon it's just, there's just so much packed into these uh, 15 or so verses. Uh, but I also think it's one of the most important passages in the Bible uh, because uh, this is quite unique in the way it helps us understand the very nature of God. Uh, so up front uh, with you today, uh, it might be a bit of a mental stretch on your Sunday morning uh, to get our heads around what Jesus is talking about here as he talks about himself. Uh, I would say it's not that simple, not that straightforward, um, but it's wonderful, uh, and more than that, it's important. And I want to start by trying to explain why I think this passage is just so important for us. Uh, here at church, we regularly say uh, creeds like the Apostles' Creed, which includes uh, the line we'll say regularly, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Uh, We sing about and we sing to Jesus, the Son of God. But when was the last time he went, well, hang on, how can God have a son? How strange, when you think about it, that actually is. And in what way is Jesus God's son? 
What way is he different to human son and father relationship? What, what does this even mean, that God would have a son? I think we can get so familiar with words like this, we can sort of pass over what they mean and not do that hard work of reflecting. So imagine this, um, putting, putting this another way, imagine this, uh, tomorrow at work or at school, or I suppose uh, three months from now when uni finally goes back, um, just imagine you're sitting next to a classmate, a colleague, uh, you're getting to know them a bit, they find out you're a Christian, and you find out that they're a Muslim. And they say to you, well, how is it that you Christians believe God had a son? doesn't make sense. Don't you believe in one God? There is only one God. How can God have a son? Now, if that was to happen to you tomorrow, or three months for uni student, if that was to happen, how confident are you you could answer that question well? It's a tough one. Uh, just as likely, I think, uh, the Jehovah's Witness will knock on your door one day, and if you find, they find out you're a Christian, one of the first things I want to talk to you about is how can Jesus be the Son of God? It doesn't make sense. Fully God? No, of course not. He's some kind of like less than divine kind of creature. How confident are you that you could engage with that in a, in a biblical and thoughtful way? It's not easy. Uh, and the good news for all of us, actually, is that there's no theology exam to get into heaven. Uh, that's a good thing, and this is a hard topic to kind of think carefully about. I just want to say, as a rule of thumb, uh, in those kind of conversations I mentioned, uh, the far more important thing is conducting ourselves in a manner, uh, a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We don't have to have all the right answers for all the right questions perfectly prepared, but it does help, doesn't it? More than that, though, and what I'm really asking, I suppose, about why this matters so much, is the question of how confident we are that we actually know who we're worshipping. As Christians, uh, we have thrown our whole life at the feet of Jesus Christ, but who exactly is Jesus Christ? Of course, we want to find out as much as we possibly can about him, don't we? To know him as he really is, not kind of as we imagine he might be, but as he describes himself. We want to understand that well, don't we? Because growing in our knowledge of God uh, is a good thing because it will help us worship God in truth. Say that again, growing in our knowledge of God is a good thing because it will help us in our worship, uh, worshipping God in truth. See, worshipping our God and growing in our worshipping God isn't just about you know, great guitars and brilliant musicians with great songs. That's all good stuff, great stuff. But what helps us as people who will grow in our worship is growing in our understanding of who we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's the reason we want to be working hard at passages like this one, not just skip over them and assume we'll work it out one day. Uh, Jesus talking about himself like this in this passage, I think this makes it a truly special part of the Bible, uh, and I think it's worthy of our hard work and our mental energy on a warm Sunday morning. Uh, I should say as well, if you're here and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, uh, a really warm welcome to you, uh, and I hope as we work through this passage, you'll see that um, what might first seem a bit abstract uh, will help you come to see that Christianity is not just a set of rules to follow, uh, it's not just a set of doctrines to sign up to, uh, instead, Christianity is about an astoundingly complex God who is on about relationship. This passage tells us God is on about relationship. And I hope you'll see as well that the Bible's description of God is not simple. It's complex, like I said. The nature of God is complex in a way that I think would be impossible to invent. And I think that's because uh, the God of the Bible is no mere human speculation. Well, uh, this whole discussion Jesus has with the Jewish leaders kicks off because uh, of what we looked at last week, uh, when Jesus completely healed a man who had been bedridden for 38 years. You would think that would make everyone happy with Jesus, right? Like, that's pretty great. 38 years, he's, he's healed him completely, but no. Uh, because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, and because of that, he has a run-in with the Jewish leaders. And actually, from here on in, in John, uh, the Jewish leaders become more and more and more hostile towards Jesus. 
Now, as they kind of uh, go to him and start accusing him and persecuting him, Jesus actually could have defended himself in plenty of different ways. Um, he could have said, for instance, uh, well, acts of compassion on the Sabbath, they're fine. That's not, a, that's not a problem. That's not breaking the Sabbath. And actually, Jesus kind of does make that argument in other places. Uh, he could have actually turned it back on the Jewish leaders and accused them of hypocrisy because they just seem to pick and choose what's right and what's wrong on the Sabbath. And they pick things that suits them. Uh, and Jesus does, in other places, accuse them of hypocrisy and takes his defense in that direction. Here in John chapter 5, uh, John takes the super nuclear option and says, in verse 17, if you have a look with me, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, the very first problem uh, for Jewish ears is this. Uh, Jewish people were very happy to call God our Father. Um, as Jewish people gathered, they would pray together or whatever, they were speaking about God, they would quite happily, collectively, talk about God as our Father. But no one individual in their right mind would call God my Father. It's just the kind of thing a crazy person might say. And it gets worse because in context, as Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, what he's saying here would sound even crazier to them. Well, actually, not crazy. It sounds blasphemous. So let's just pause and think briefly about the Sabbath here. It's a pretty key part of what's going on. Uh, in Genesis, at the very start of the Bible, uh, we read about how God creating the world, he does it in six days, and on the seventh day, uh, God rested from his work. And so God declared the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, is a holy day. And then later, through Moses, it's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Uh, that God gives Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy, to not work on the seventh day, uh, because on the seventh day, God rested from his work. What we might miss, though, because we don't really talk or think much about the Sabbath, uh, but what we might miss is that Jewish people would have understood very well God didn't rest from all of his work on the Sabbath. That's not what's happening in Genesis. In Genesis, God rests from his work of creating. He's finished creating, so he rests from his work of creating, but his other work continues. See, it's not like just, you know, God worked for six days, seventh day, put his feet up, had a breather, watched the footy, uh, and on the eighth day, got back to work. That's not what happens. Uh, if it was like that, the universe would have fallen apart on that seventh day because God sustains and holds the universe together. What's happening on the Sabbath is that God rested, it, like he stopped creating and he turned to enjoy and to rest and being delighted in his good and perfect creation. His Sabbath day didn't finish when the eighth day started. God continued to rest, continued to enjoy his Sabbath having completed his creating work. He kept enjoying it perfectly. Until, of course, uh, the perfect creation was rudely interrupted by the effects of sin. So as God commands his people to obey the Sabbath, it wasn't just a command to stop work. Uh, the idea was to stop work so that people could remember a perfect creation. But more than that, to look forward to being rescued from this world, which isn't perfect, which isn't restful. And to look forward to a fresh start for everything with nothing ever more tainted by sin and disorder. So the Sabbath day was about looking forward to that rest, the future Sabbath that we will enjoy with God. Now, at one level, uh, the Jewish leaders, they would have known that far better than we do. It was actually really commonly agreed that uh, amongst the great Jewish thinkers, the great rabbis, God did work on the Sabbath. That wasn't really an argument. It wasn't controversial. He sustained life. It's obvious. When a baby was born on the Sabbath, there's a gift of God. He's at work. When someone died, that was evidence God was at work, taking life. So God works on the Sabbath. That... With all that in mind, for Jesus to defend himself healing on the Sabbath by saying, oh, it's okay, uh, my father's working and so am I, it sounds blasphemous. I guess, legally speaking, you could say 
it actually sounds like Jesus is pleading insanity at this point. Only a crazy person would compare themselves to the Father working on creation like that, or working on the Sabbath like that. It's okay for God, it's okay for me, because he's my Father. Now, even if we don't kind of grasp how spectacularly outrageous this comment from Jesus is, have a look at the reaction. Uh, they pick up on this problem straight away, verse 18. For this reason, they tried to kill him all, uh, try all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, the Jewish people had, had a pretty bad history of worshipping lots of other gods, lots of idols, um, competitors to God, I suppose. Uh, and in times past, they had a terrible time keeping the first commandment, to have no other gods beside me. The Jewish people for generations had failed, had failed, had failed. And in fact, if you remember our series in Two Kings last year, it was one of the main reasons they ended up in exile. It's idolatry. They couldn't stop themselves from worshipping other gods. But the exile, that horrible, horrible medicine of the exile, at least cured the Jewish people of their idolatry. And so here, post-exile, with Jesus, the leaders are rightly concerned that, about the most fundamental teaching uh, that God has revealed about himself in the Old Testament. The Lord your God is one. There is none beside me. I will not share my glory with another. So the Jewish leaders hear Jesus make himself equal with God. They're right to hear that, by the way. I think it's impossible to read verse 17 without coming to that conclusion. And if Jesus is equal with God, and under their own law, by rights, they probably could kill him for blasphemy, I think. There is one God. Jesus can't be equal to him, they think, because that would make, well, two gods, wouldn't it? Or at very least, a god and some of a semi-god or a demigod. That would be a big problem. But that's what the rest of this passage goes on to explain. The way in which Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is not another God. He's not a demigod. He's not some sort of half-divine, half-man. Uh, which I think is what uh, Muslims uh, think we mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God. I'm told that there, uh, Muslims understand Christians believe that God came to be with Mary. They conceived Jesus and that's how he became God's Son. But it's not so. Jesus is the son of the Father. From verse 19, Jesus teaches us what that means. And he starts by explaining that he is completely dependent and obedient to his Father. Now, if you want to um, have some technical language to use here, and this might be something to note down and want to read up on later, uh, Jesus is describing that as the son, he is subordinate to the Father. The son is subordinate to the Father. Because you'll see, it never says the opposite in the Bible, that the Father does exactly what the Son does, only the Son does what the Father does, what He wills. But more, more precisely, what Jesus is describing is functional subordination. There's our big words for today, functional subordination. That's what Jesus is describing. That is, He is equal in His divinity, in His worth, but He functions willingly in a subordinate way, in an obedient way. He's not an independent operator going and doing his own thing. He's doing the same thing as the Father. Jesus isn't that interested in being original, coming up with new ways of doing things. He's subordinate. He submits. He obeys his Father. Equal in divine status, but functionally in practice, subordinate. It's quite extraordinary. It's kind of the opposite, really, of the teenager who kind of tries to cast their whole life in the opposite way to their parents. Here, the son obeys. He does, and he only does what his father is doing. Now, in a place like TAFE, uh, we get weekly reminders, I suppose, or just kind of a weekly insight into, uh, I guess, what's involved in being an apprentice. Um, that is, having an experienced master or a boss, an expert in their trade, take someone under their wing 
uh, show them over time all there is to know about their trade. In the ancient world, in Jesus' day, uh, you didn't sign up to be an apprentice with some random blacksmith or some, you know, someone you sort of entrust yourself to, like a place like TAFE. Instead, a father would show their son the trade secret, secrets. A father would raise his son up over time, getting him ready to take on the family business. Uh, Jesus himself would have learnt his uh, earthly trade, a builder, under the watchful eye of his earthly father, Joseph. So as Jesus here talks in verse 20 about his father loving him and showing him all he does, that kind of image comes to mind, doesn't it? The father instructing the son in the way of the family business. Jesus is saying because the father loves him, the father doesn't hold anything back. He shows him everything. So Jesus doesn't have reduced power. He doesn't have limited knowledge. All that the Father does, he shows the Son. And I reckon one of the most captivating, most fascinating things about this relationship between Father and Son is what Jesus says about the Father loving the Son. It's something that's happened from eternity past. At the heart of who God is in his essence, Father and Son, and not our focus today, but the Spirit as well, all equally God. Father, Son, Spirit, all equally God, bound together by love. It's why, as Christians, we can say God is love. A Muslim might say Allah is kind, Allah is loving, but only Christians can say that God is love. Because from all eternity, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and so on. That is, God is love in the core of His triune being. And so, we're right to say that God loves me, God loves us, those things are of course true. But one of the things that stands out here is what is primary, what is the most, most important thing, is that the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. It might sound strange, but His love for us is actually secondary to the love they have for each other. I personally find that really uh, assuring, actually, to know that this uh, perfect love that's existed perfectly uh, for all eternity is also perfect in the way it pours out to each one of us. It's a wonderful love. So at this point, let me just ask, uh, even in what we have seen already, have you realised, like I I did as I was working through this passage this week, have you realised that we can sometimes be a bit blasé about Jesus' divine nature? Uh, We might think of him as a good saviour, of course, a great king, yes, a wonderful teacher, of course. But the Son of God, perfectly obedient, equal to the Father, doing what the Father does. Uh, Passages like this rightly make us pause and challenge a small or limited view of Jesus. And it really challenges the selfish view that Jesus kind of exists simply for my eternal benefit. He's so much more glorious than that, isn't he? At the end of verse 20, Jesus kind of changes gears a bit here and he says how there are greater works coming that will be amazing. As if, you know, healing someone that's been bedridden for 38 years isn't amazing enough. Turns out that's just the entree. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus tells us the big, um, two big amazing things he will go on to do. Uh, verse 21, the son will raise the dead and give life. And verse 22, he'll bring judgment to all. And Jesus basically goes on to talk about those two great works of the Son of God for the rest of this passage, bringing life and bringing judgment. And in both bringing life and in bringing judgment, Jesus has full authority given to him by the Father. Do you notice verse 23, why the Father gives him all this authority, why the Father does all this? Verse 23, he does it that all may honour the Son as they honour the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's amazing when you think how God has made so clear, especially in the Old Testament, that he does not share his glory. That's the whole point of the idolatry issue. God doesn't, he hates others. He hates other false gods getting credit for his work. And that's right. He's rightly jealous for our hearts. He's rightly jealous for our worship and for the honor to be given to him. How astounding then that he would share his honor with his son. So for those who think of Jesus as just a great moral teacher, for those who think he was some kind of just enlightened spiritual man, to hear Jesus talking about himself like that, I think it throws a huge spanner in, in that works. See, we ought to honor the Father and worship the Father just as we honor and worship the Son. Christ is not just a nice guy who died for our sins. He shares the honor of the Father, fully God, and fully deserving our lives in his service. So reflection question for the day, are we honouring Christ with our lives? Are we honouring Christ with our lives? Are we giving him the honour he deserves? The Son of God, the most important, most glorious focal point in the universe. Are we honouring him or is he an afterthought? Do we squeeze him around the edge of our lives, kind of squeeze him around the rest of our priorities? From verse 24, that question actually becomes the real focus. Uh, How do we respond to Jesus? And there is actually no question more important than this because Jesus says in verse 25, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Only God can give life, that's just a truism I suppose, but Jesus says here, yes, I can give life and just like the Father, I will. And here he's saying that there is a point when history will come to a close, when he, Jesus, the Son of God, will call out the dead from their graves. Everyone will rise. Genghis Khan, Captain Cook, Queen Elizabeth, you, your great-great-great-great-grandparents. We'll all be given life at the word of Jesus. And then everyone will face the judgment of the Son. On that day, the only question that will matter, the only question that matter will be, did you honour the Son? The question is not, were you a good person? The question is not, did you go to church a lot? The question is not, did you try hard? Were you sincere? The question that matters, the only question that matters is, did you honour my Son? Now, the good news, the very good news, is that God doesn't leave us hanging till that day to find out, you know, what's going to happen. We don't have to go through life painfully wondering if we've honoured him enough, we've done enough. We don't have to be unsure whether we'll receive judgment or eternal life. Being terrified. Jesus spares us of that uncertainty. And in verse 24, we see what he's doing is he brings that future judgment forward to, well, for us, he brings it forward to today. Jesus has come into our world to give eternal life and assurance, actually, of that eternal life. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who, has, who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Hearing Jesus is pretty key, isn't it? Whoever hears my words. It's more than just having his, his words fall on our ears, though, isn't it? But hearing him is to take his word in, to accept what he's saying. And if we've done that, it means we have eternal life and we will be free from all judgment on that day. That extraordinary promise for those who hear and believe is that we have crossed over already, crossed over already from death to life. Isn't that amazing? Now, can I ask, have you crossed over from death to life? 
Have you heard Jesus and his promise of salvation, his call to repent and follow him? And have you believed the one who sent him? Have you believed that he is the God who made us, who loves us and calls us to come to him? If that's you, uh, please don't delay a moment longer. We'll have a look now with me at verse 26 uh, to keep filling out who it is uh, we're talking about when we talk about the Son of God. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in in himself. Now, this is not simply saying the Father is alive, that the Son is alive. Having life in himself, uh, it's a definition really of being divine, isn't it? To be the originator, to have the source of life itself, to exist really without being created. To be life, to have that quality of existence is for God alone. And here, Jesus has life in himself. That is, he has this quality of godness, I suppose. If anyone here is thinking, well, I thought Cam said this would be mentally stretching, this is pretty straightforward, not a big deal. Um, if that's you, and there might be some in the room who've covered this territory well, but perhaps for a stretch kind of question for yourselves, um, you can reflect on this and you can tell me later what you think. What could it possibly mean uh, for the Son to have life in himself, this divine quality of self-sufficiency, but it was granted to him? How can something about life in itself, a divine quality like that, be granted to him? How can that possibly be? If you want a bit of a reflection to stretch yourself further, come and, uh, come and speak to me more about that if you have some thoughts. In any case, the Son has life in himself, and so he can call out the dead. He has that power. So verse 27, he has the power to be the one also who has the authority to judge everyone who has ever lived. It's interesting, Jesus gives us the reason why he's qualified to judge, doesn't he? The reason Jesus gives as to why he will be the judge of the living and the dead in verse 27, he says it's because he's the Son of Man. The Son of God is also the Son of Man. Now, that's a title. Uh, It's a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you're taking notes, you might like to have a read of Daniel chapter 7 later. It's a stunning vision in that chapter of uh, someone, a Son of Man, being given all authority by God. Jesus is saying, here, that's me, I'm the Son of Man. It's a title for Jesus. But the Son of Man is also a description of Jesus. He's not simply God the Son. He is also fully human, the Son of people. And uh, actually, if you want to think more about how he can be both fully God and fully human, uh, the first couple of sermons uh, I preached in the John series last year uh, covers those uh, topics. You can go back and look that online. What matters, why that matters here, though, sorry, is why that matters here that he's a human is because as the Son of God, he has authority to judge, he's qualified in that sense, but as a Son of Man, he's one of us. He has the right or the qualifications to judge us because he's lived as we lived. He's faced the same temptations we face, the same suffering, the same fears. He's doubly qualified to be our judge. That's a very good thing when you think about it, because he is the best of all possible judges. He knows everything. He knows all that the Father knows, and he judges us as one of our own. What's even better about him being a judge is he doesn't leave us guessing about what his standards of judgment will be. He gives us the clearest possible definition of how we will be judged on that day. In verse 29, those who have done what is good will rise to live. If you're wondering, well, what is the good? How much good? He's already told us what the good is back in verse 24. The good in this chapter is to hear Jesus, to accept his words and take them on to believe. That's the good spoken of in verse 29. And to do evil, that's to dishonor the Son. That's the constant theme through this section, through John through the Bible. 
which is to say we have nothing at all to fear on that day if we have taken Jesus' words on as the truth that shapes our life. We can praise the Father, we can praise the Son for the incredible kindness to us in this and praise the Spirit too for His role in our salvation, but more on that another day. Now, supposed to kind of wrap up, the question is, what does this all mean for us? Clearly, uh, first, the Son of God is worthy of our praise, isn't he? He's worthy of our whole lives. He deserves far more than just the occasional Sunday morning. It struck me this week, actually, that uh, in this part of John, we have the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus, speaking about the most important topic of all time, Jesus. And he highlights how important it is that we hear his words. Now, I'm very conscious, a sermon like this for some people will be a bit dry, a bit hard to kind of uh, follow along, could feel pretty long, a bit dense, uh, a bit too intellectual perhaps for some. Don't get me wrong, if I've made Jesus sound boring or confusing, that's on me, that's not Jesus. But I hope this morning as we've looked at this passage, we all get a sense of how important it is to stretch ourselves mentally, to do that hard work of thinking for ourselves about what God's Word says, to try to hear and to understand as God's people. Because as I said at the start, it just won't do, will it? Going through life, worshipping and serving Jesus, if we don't really know who that is. If we have some sort of fuzzy, half-baked Jesus in mind, well, our worship will be immature. Our discipleship will be lacking. Or worse yet, if we were to reject some version of Jesus that is less than the full picture of who he actually is, what a disaster. We've rejected the wrong guy. And so I think this passage really does drive us as God's people to humility, uh, knowing actually we've only just scratched the surface today of who Jesus is. And again, if you know all this already, if you've covered this uh, Christology time and again, that, that's great. My encouragement is don't stop learning about our wonderful Lord. Uh, if you're finding way, you want to find ways to get stretched further in your thinking and you're learning about who Jesus is, come speak to me, I've got some recommendations. If your head's hurting, if you're feeling a bit stretched by all this and it's been hard to concentrate, that's okay. Uh, It's really a good thing you've been challenged to think hard this morning. And with humility, let's never stop applying ourselves to doing that, to carefully reading, uh, careful, deliberate, undistracted thinking about who our Saviour is. And with humility, let's not do that for our own sake, actually. Let's do it because that will grow our hearts to worship God the Son for who He really is. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your Son. We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you so much you have given him authority to give life and to judge, and we praise you for your plans for our salvation in him. Lord Jesus, we humbly ask you would help each of us grow to know you more and more as you are. Please help us not just accumulate fancy words or grab onto correct doctrines for its own sake but help us grasp more fully your glory and your power and your love. So help each one of us honour you, serve you, and love you with our whole lives. Amen.